BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is another episode of a very special series, Getting to Know Our Coaches. We're joined with Vanessa Berman today. Vanessa, what's going on? Hey, everybody. How's it going? (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll have to get you multiple cups of coffee before the next time we we do this. <laughs> it'll be the same tone just faster i had um, some pre-workout Is that oh yeah. <laughs> yeah you got hyped for this uh, that's funny yeah well i'm doing this podcast uh right now in a closet because i just moved to san diego in my studio my like office isn't set up so i was thinking i was like what's the place that's gonna have the least amount of room reverberation like so i have a bunch of uh hanging clothes right in front of me like my nose is, I, I should have videoed this. This would be terrible on video. They'd be like, why is he like nose deep in button down shirts right now? I think so, that would be quite entertaining actually to, to watch you do a podcast in your closet. <laughs> yeah. People, people would, uh, would appreciate that. The lengths I'm going to, you know, to get material out to the internets. Right. Knows no bounds. Your, house, your new house less than 24 hours. Yeah. Literally my first step foot in here a uh, 24 hours ago. Yeah. And so. I think unpacking is like, it's better than packing. Totally. Right? Uh, but, well, actually, I don't know. That's debatable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess there's no, there's not really a lot of trash to deal with when you pack. Like, That's so, true. so I get a, po- a box like unpacked and I'm like, what do I do with this box? <laughs> <laughs> Throw it so, out somewhere over the balcony. Do you have a balcony? <laughs> I have a balcony, but I don't think that the street under, below me would appreciate me just jettisoning jettisoning this yeah that's not being a very good neighbor (laughs) no no they'd be like how we gotta kick this guy out uh okay so we have some questions to ask you we're gonna talk about a lot of nutrition related stuff but let's start out with uh, some background info so if you guys don't know vanessa she is she's been working with barbell medicine now was it almost three years right oh yeah i think so yeah i think it's close to that. It's getting close to three years. And then um, prior to that, you were doing your own sort of uh, remote coaching while you still worked as a registered dietitian in a hospital. But you're also a lifter. You've got a, a, a nice pedigree here. Why don't you tell people about your uh, your lifting background? Oh, gosh. Well, um, it's been a while <laughs> since I actually did any uh, competing. But yeah, I did compete um, a handful of times in 2015. Gosh, I feel like that was yesterday, but it's already been like four years. Um, so yeah, my my very first meet was in May of 2015. And 
it's actually where I met Leah. <laughs> um, but I had a really good first meet and I think my best lifts were still from that meet, which was a 281 pound squat, a 320 pound deadlift and I think like 145 pound bench. <laughs> um, as a, you were 63, I, was that the I was, old weight classes? I was, I think I, that first meet I actually was a 72. Yeah. Okay. And then everything else, I competed as a 63. Um, okay. Yeah. Went to then, went to Raw Nationals later that year for fun, mm-hmm. not in a competitive way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were competing. I was, but, you know, it was, it was more for the experience, and I'm glad I did it, even if I wasn't, you know, the best lifter. <laughs> well, so that's, that's an interesting thing, because, uh, you know, we get people ask us all the time, like, when should I compete? You know, what's the when what's the appropriate time to sign up for a meet and and i think you know if if we're using this this sort of definition of like competitive being a competitor or being competitive with your your cohort is like the litmus test for going to a powerlifting meet then there's only a handful of meets that i've been competitive in yeah like even ron that that year i think so you competed it was 2015 Mm -hmm. in scranton Mm -hmm. so i got fourth that year but if you would have asked me prior to that meet was I going to win? The answer is no. Yeah. Like I was pretty confident that I wasn't going to win. I thought I'd be up there, you know, in the top five, but I didn't think that I, I had a chance at winning. So was I a competitive competitor? <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, it's true. I mean, you can't always think of it like that. I think maybe one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten was from a previous coach. And they said that you'll never be as strong as you want to be before you compete. <laughs> yeah, so you that's just kind of have to do it. Well, all these people are like, I need to be at least like world-class before I sign up for a local <laughs> right. meet. And it's like, I mean, that may never happen. Yeah. And then the point is for sign up for a meet, there's a couple points. Point one is giving yourself like an out, a competitive outlet, right? So you have like uh, a delineated goal, like firm goal that has to be achieved by a certain date. So you have to like show up, perform to a certain standard, right? And then, be judged against your peers. So some people that like turn, you know, takes their training up a notch. Mm -hmm. Um, Another goal would be to figure out, do you even like the sport? Mm -hmm. You know, like, like meaning, are you willing to make the compromises in your training and lifestyle necessary to pursue the sport based on some enjoyment of competing? Right. Right. (laughs) If you sign up for a powerlifting meeting, you hate it. Yeah. What's what's the point? (laughs) Yeah. What do you do? What do you do? Why are you wasting your time? Uh, Yeah. Right. And then the third thing is maybe as a, a, like a secondary goal, like weight goal, like, all right, I'm going to cut weight. I'm going to lose a certain amount of weight so I could compete. It's almost like your reward for making a certain weight class. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how we, that's how I tricked Leah into competing. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. Like when we started, she was 200 pounds. Right. And then I was like, Hey, you should sign up for a meet the 165 weight class. And I think she still had like 15 pounds to go to get there. This is like pretty early on in our, in our coaching uh, relationship. And so she was like, wait, what? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Just sign up for the 165 class. And, fine. <laughs> and but, but you know, that again, hard end goal, like where you have to achieve a certain body weight and then go compete. Yeah. So I don't know. I think you can use it for a bunch of different reasons, but the point is like, are you going to be competitive or not? Well, it depends who shows right. up. Did you ever win a meet? Did I ever win a meet? No, I don't think so. Not that I remember. I have some medal, but I think it's from like third place i don't know yeah but still third right so it's like if the two people in front of you didn't show right, up then i would have won yeah then you would won that's true yeah. uh <laughs> <laughs> okay so enough lifting yes with the your education background take us take us through your academic background Okay, so I have a Bachelor's of Science um, in Food and Nutrition from San Diego State University and a Graduate Certificate in Dietetics from San Francisco State. And then after, um, or sorry, during that period of time, I was doing my dietetic internship through San Francisco State. Yeah. Okay. What was your, now I'm unfamiliar with the actual academic process for getting your registered dietitian's mm-hmm. license, but the, the internship, is it 
just general nutrition or can you specialize Um, you don't really specialize you have different rotations so they're all fairly similar but certain internships could be geared a little bit more towards clinical nutrition or a little bit more towards um like community nutrition or something like that but overall um Mm -hmm. they're kind of i'd say kind of well-rounded like you have um, a, you do have a clinical rotation, you do have community and then, um, usually like a food service type rotation as well. So, okay. So, that, so, and then total though, that's four years yes. undergrad and then how many years post, post, uh, um, the education? internship is usually between six to 12 months. Um, yeah, it's about okay. 1200, uh, supervised practice hours. Right, right, right. Um, uh, cool. And then how long have you been coaching? Because I think, so here's, here's the trick or here's the, here's a little background story that not a lot of people know. So I think the year was, this must've been 2015, maybe even 2014 where I slid into Vanessa's Facebook messenger. This was, this predated like DM, <laughs> you know, popularity center of Facebook message. And I was like, Hey, uh, I need some nutrition coaching because the idea was I wanted to bring on another coach to the barbell medicine staff, but I didn't want to like, you know, let it be known who I was or whatever. So it was like, I, I either used a fake profile or a fake name when I emailed you or something from, you know, after I got your contact info, uh, to see how you would, you know, provide the coaching, see how you worked. And then, uh, after she provided the initial recommendations, I was like, Hey, gotcha. Let's get on a phone call. Talk about coaching. (laughs) Are you sure you used a a fake name? I feel like you used your real name. I just didn't know who you were. (laughs) Oh, it could have been, this is, well, this also predated any sort of popularity that I (laughs) ever had. Either way. I feel, I feel, uh, I feel a little bit duped, but you definitely tested me. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. That's how, that's how you test folks. Um, so how, when did you start coaching people? Um, like doing nice remote, like nutrition kind of consultation stuff. Oh gosh. Um, I feel like I've always had some sort of like side coaching business. Um, I've been a dietitian for probably over seven years now. So I would say about at least five of that or like five years is how long I've been doing like private or like online coaching. Okay. Yeah. So uh, it's been a minute. Yeah. It's been a minute. I want to talk and give the listeners at home a kind of background on like, what does it take to actually get an RD and kind of the process and then just kind of tease out some nuance between, uh, you know, what it, what it means to be a registered dietitian and then just kind of like your quote unquote nutritional expert. So why don't you take uh, the people at home through the process of getting an RD? What does it take to be a registered dietitian? So um, it takes a bachelor's degree um, at an accredited school by the Commission of Accreditation for Dietetics Education. And then from there, you do need to do a dietetic internship, which again is between six to 12 months. Uh, And then you need to pass the RD exam. And that's quite fun. (laughs) Uh, And then you need to maintain your certification through continuing education, which is about 75 units every five years or so. This sounds very similar to like pretty much every medical, you know, accreditation yes. or license that you can get. So you have to go to a formal, like a school that's been accredited by the national organization. Right. And then after graduation, you have to pass some sort of licensing exam, which is usually done after you've done some sort of supervised experience. Like you can't, like if you graduate medical school, you can't take your boards and you can't take, get, you know, get apply for state licensure until you've had some postgraduate super like supervised Correct. training. Yeah. Uh, and I heard it's actually pretty competitive to try to get these internships. Yeah. Like, it, what's the deal with that? It is. Um, I think when I was applying, the acceptance rate was about 50%. Um, and honestly, it's been so long. I'm not quite sure if it's, if it's harder than that now or if it's about the same. But yeah, I mean, 50%, like... It's okay, but a lot of people don't get matched their first year. So that can be tough. Do you guys call it the match? What's that? Do you guys call it the match? We call it the match, yep. Oh, man. 
Sorry, doctors are not the only ones. No, but I just like, I have PTSD from this experience. <laughs> I know. I think we all do. <laughs> yeah. So again, for the listeners at home, like uh, we call the match between uh, gr- graduating uh, uh, seniors from medical school and residency programs. We call that whole process the match. And effectively what you do is you go on all these interviews to these schools that you know, decide that they would like to interview you for a residency slot. You rank them in order from like most, prefer, you know, the one you prefer the most to the one you prefer the least. And then through some algorithm, there was actually a Freakonomics uh, podcast on this that gave me more insight into how that algorithm works. But anyway, they match people uh, and residency programs together based on preferences. So most folks, you know, will not end up getting their first choice. Mm-hmm. Uh but some folks do who are especially really competitive candidates, you know, the studs, I, I guess in, in, for the nutrition program, do you guys apply to multiple programs at the same time? Yeah, you do. I think, gosh, I can't even remember if there's a cap or not, but I applied to at least four. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, it's not unusual for like very competitive, uh, medical residency, um, programs, you know, for, or for students to apply to like, 20 right, yeah. programs or, or rank 20 programs because like if you would try to apply orthopedics since it's super competitive you'd rank you know a lot yeah. compared to family medicine i mean i only ranked yeah i think i ranked four spots mm-hmm. three or four spots i forgot it's been a while yeah. uh okay so you did all that and now you're out in the community you're doing things i'm doing things <laughs> what was the first job you took out of uh after you got your rd license so the first job I took was actually the place that I interned at for my clinical and food service rotation. Um, so once my oh they hired you yeah on, once my internship ended, um, I think I had a period of like four months where I was looking for jobs and applying to jobs, and then something opened up at the hospital that I had interned at, and they offered it to me. So yeah, did you did you like the job? You know, like what were you doing? I was doing <laughs> just straight up clinical nutrition. So, um, nutrition assessment on all kinds of different patients. I was doing tube feedings, TPN recommendations, nutrition education, um, outpatient counseling. Uh, it was a number of different things. And did I like it? Yes and no. Um, I liked it for the experience. I think it gave me a really solid foundation for what I'm doing now, but overall clinical nutrition was never really my passion. So I'm super thankful to be doing what I'm doing now and coaching full time. So do you think, do you think that you would have preferred doing outpatient Um, like nutritional counseling? I guess more, you you know, there's limited, there are limited opportunities to do that in like primary care settings or even, you know, yeah, there's not a lot of practices that that employ a nutritionist on on site. Right. Know. I think I I think I would have liked that if I was doing it for myself from the beginning. There's kind right. of a lot of yeah, hospital politics and policies that you don't have as much flexibility with. So that's one. They, they should they should foam roll. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> so well, okay. Well, this actually because I just misspoke. And I said, you know, a lot of these practices don't employ a nutritionist, but there are differences between a registered dietitian and a nutritionist. Do you want to clarify once and for all? Yeah. What's, what's the difference? Yeah, I would love to clarify. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the differences here are basically there's registered dietitians and then there's everyone else. <laughs> um, not, I know I'm going to ruffle some feathers maybe a little bit here, but uh, not saying that a nutritionist isn't a legit profession because it can be, but literally anybody can call themselves a nutritionist. Um, they don't really have any formal education requirements and there's no exam or regulated credentialing or no continuing education requirement. So they're pretty much free from government regulation. Um, and then, you know, as I kind of said previously, dietitians have to compete a number of supervised practice hours and we do have to do continuing education and, um, we are regulated and have to abide by a written code of ethics, scope of practice, that kind of thing. So there are very significant differences here. Yeah. 
I mean, basically an RD having that license assures that somebody went through the requisite training has a current is currently in good standing with the organization, you know, hasn't messed up. And then again, has possesses at least a, a, a minimum level of knowledge, a, a minimum level of knowledge that would allow them to work at the highest level. Correct. I mean, I hate saying minimum level of knowledge, but it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of true. <laughs> you, yeah. Well, you have to have these certain skills in order to work in a hospital, for instance, yes. whereas there are no nutrition certifications that you can get that allow you to do yeah. that. I mean, interestingly, like, and I don't know how much you keep up with this. This is just interesting to me. Um, there, each state has like different laws based on what people without the registered dietitian license can and can't do. So for instance, in the state of California, it's legal for all to perform individualized nutrition counseling effectively. uh, But but that being said, the state doesn't recognize anybody who's not an RD. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas you go to a state like Missouri, where I'm from originally, it is illegal to perform individualized nutrition counseling unless licensed uh, as an RD or other medical professional. They list a medical doctor, uh, tech, uh, you could be an optometrist, podiatrist, mm-hmm. um, which is, is interesting. But but again, it's just uh, giving people this uh, necessary sort of education background in order to to counsel folks on nutrition. Um, I guess when you're when you're you're on the internet these days, and you're you're looking at all these people who are just doling out nutrition recommendations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what's your like? What is your sense of Who's it appropriate for people to do? You know, like, like I guess that said differently and more clearly, who do you think should be making nutrition recommendations either to the public or even to individuals? Oh man, this is, this is a tough one. Um, <laughs> but I mean, obviously most registered dietitians, um, cause they do have some formal training in nutrition. Um, mm-hmm. and then I think it's appropriate for some other medical professionals, doctors, um, and probably about 5% of Instagram and not 90% of Instagram. <laughs> right. So right. yeah, it's, it's a short list of people. And even then you do have to be cautious of who you decide to listen to because people are very opinionated. It's not always, um, science-based information. So it can be scary out there. Yeah. 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 I, I go back and forth on this because, um, I do think that increasing the, I guess, awareness of how individuals perceive their role in their own health is a really important thing just to get people more involved in their own health, right? So it's like, okay, I know that if I change my nutrition, if I change other lifestyle habits, I can improve my own health. You know, some people don't know that. They haven't internalized that. They have no insight into that. And that's keeping them from making these behavioral changes. Right. Um, but so, so on, with that in mind, I'm like, well, it's great that we have all these people kind of encouraging folks to make behavioral changes, even if I don't necessarily love the behavioral changes, I don't necessarily love mm-hmm. the message. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but then, I, but then it's like these messages and, and the information are in general, very yes, bad <laughs> and, and bad and bad from a quality standpoint. And then potentially harmful, you know? So I I think, you know, it's interesting on the internet and digital, this digital marketing, digital market age, um, where people, they effectively, they earn trust through to their audience via relatable qualities, relatable, you know, even if it's just demographic, you know, oh, you're a woman, I'm a woman. Cool. Or like you do CrossFit, I do CrossFit. Cool. Or, you know. And, and, and then, um, there's also this word of mouth thing like, Oh, so-and-so helped me on my nutrition. You know, you should contact them, but this person doesn't necessarily need an education in order to do that, particularly on the inter- over the internet, because you can't regulate it. You know, uh, I struggle a lot with not wanting to call out these people who I think are putting out harmful messages. So, so just for example, there's been a push towards talking about hormones, mm-hmm. particularly as they're related to dietary intake and how if you micromanage your nutrition, you can manipulate your hormones to optimize them, mm-hmm. which is bullshit. 
Yes, it is. <laughs> which is bullshit. Um, there are general things that you can do lifestyle nutrition wise that can improve certain hormones to a clinically meaningful effect. So for instance, if you have type two diabetes and you're obese or overweight or carrying too much body fat tissue, otherwise, uh, resolving that issue via calorie restriction by any metric, by any type of diet will improve your hormonal function secondary to weight loss. Right. But it wasn't the actual like micromanaging of any food. So it's just, again, combating obesity. Same thing with certain levels of hypogonadism. If you combat obesity, you can increase your free and total testosterone levels. Um, if you're obese, not if you're normal weight anyway, there's a, so broad strokes, sure. There's application there. But when people are talking about, I need to get my thyroid hormone up by, you know, 0.5 mm-hmm. and I can, do that. I don't know why that's the voice I'm using. I don't, the person probably doesn't sound like that, but it's fun for me to do. Right. <laughs> and, and this person saying, yeah, you should take boron and, you know, not eat tubers or nightshades after dark mm. and like all this other wackadoo stuff. And you're like, no, just no. And like, and they make an infographic and then they have a huge following and you're like, just stop it. And, and the, what the, what the general public should do is like, Hey, what's your education in this? Yeah. Like ask, and, let's ask some questions here. Yeah. And if the person's being honest to say, I don't have any, and you're like, well, what the hell are we listening to you for? Mm-hmm. Like, so what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, or, or, you know, like their new shirts that are coming out citation desperately needed in a nice way. Right. Provide the citation. But they have thousands of likes, so this person must be important. Yeah, again, yeah. So you can get that that social sort of currency. You're like, well, look, all these other people, you know, ten thousand likes can't be wrong, right? (laughs) Oh wait, you know, uh, medical medium would be the example about how hundreds of thousands of likes can certainly be wrong, uh, routinely, almost, almost hilariously so. If it wasn't so sad, Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think if you're not a registered dietitian or a other tra- uh, otherwise trained professional, I would be very wary of making nutrition recommendations that are very specific to individuals. Yes. I think if you're a strength and conditioning coach and you have like a, a background in this um, that allows you to give some sort of general concepts, general information to your clients, that's useful. I, um, I agree. Yep. But I think it stops when you're trying to either manage anything that has like a medical pathology, either that you're trying to prevent or treat or manage, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because without medical training, it seems like probably not up for that. And then I also think it stops when you like that should stop when you're not being successful at achieving the change you're going for. Mm -hmm. So like if you have somebody, a weight loss client, they're not losing weight and it's been, you know, two or three months, you need to refer to a higher level of care. Yes. And, uh, you know, we got a lot of professionals out here. So anyway, all right. People don't want to hear from me. They want to hear from you. So I'm going to ask you more questions. Okay. Let's talk about the current nutrition guidelines. So they came out in 2015. They're good through 2020. They'll be being updated next year. I believe they'll be out in 2021. What's your take on the the current nutrition guidelines, the MyPlate, the sort of Rex, and then, you know, the associated PDF? We'll link that in the show notes. Um. So let's see, do I like these guidelines? Um, Yes and no. I think as a very basic sort of set of rules for someone to follow, maybe maybe that would be okay. But um, to actually be specific enough to help people, not entirely. Um, Yeah, that's kind of my my take on it. What what would you change about them, I think, to to make make them... Uh, maybe more useful. So I think just like putting things into practice is hard for people. So, you know, Mm -hmm. while you can say limit your calories from, you know, added sugars or something like that, people don't really even know what that means. And they don't really even know how many calories is appropriate for, you know, their body weight. They might think it's 3000. They might think it's 1000. So just kind of being, uh, a little bit more specific and even showing people like how to maybe calculate an appropriate level of calories for their, you know, age and body weight would be more helpful than just saying eat, you know, healthier foods and don't drink this beverage. You know, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is interesting. And well, the actual, like the, so the guidelines are, 
I, I tend to agree with you. I have, yeah, pluses, pluses and minuses here. The, the, the stuff that the actual guidelines are bad mm-hmm. because if someone were to like read them, internalize them, implement them, we'd be doing great. But most Americans do not mm-hmm. do anywhere near, you know, and they do not uh, achieve these goals or anywhere near these goals. Um, but, you know, the, so it's not that the guidelines are wrong. It's just that they're not being implemented. So I think, yeah, you're exactly right. The To the extent that the guidelines are responsible for the adherence or the implementation, that's, yeah, we're missing the boat there. But here's the other thing. So let's say you were a motivated individual. You're like, you know what? I'm listening to this podcast. This Vanessa woman sounds, uh, sounds very smart. And uh, now I'm going to take matters in my own hands. I'm going to look at these guidelines. I'm going to see if I can... See if I can make a change. Well, the thing is 144 pages long. (laughs) So that's barrier one, right? You you have to be motivated to like read this thing. 144 pages. And while I do applaud the use of like high res photographs and like different, you know, examples being given for food portioning and like how to construct a diet, I still, still, the problem is there's not like this turnkey kind of get started today, like quick start, right. you yeah. know, what, what to do. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's complicated a little bit, a little bit too complicated. Although again, I go back and forth with the same thing on the, with the exercise guidelines, like people are like, it needs to be more simple. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm like, what does that even mean? <laughs> does it, well, does it mean just one exercise or less exercise variety? Maybe you could make an argument for that. Does it mean one rep range or less, you know, less variation in rep ranges. I mean, again, you could make that argument, but I don't necessarily care if it's simple or not, if that doesn't affect the adherence rate. Yes. So if it's just one exercise and the same rep range and the same number of sets for in the exercise uh, sort of recommendations, but the adherence rate is still trash, then I don't think that that has changed whether it's simple or not in any sort of meaningful way. Mm-hmm. It just, you know, <laughs> there's less variables, mm-hmm. but I don't know if it's quote unquote you know, benefit, benefit, uh, if it's simple enough to make be beneficial, it's just different. Yes. So the food, yeah, the recommend the food recommendations, again, I think that they, they're making them pretty simple, at least from like an explanation, uh, explanation standpoint. And like, here are our goals for you, but it's packed in this 144 page thing. And it just, it seems like maybe there's some more barriers to, uh, entry here than we're like, recognizing from a public health standpoint. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's better than nothing. I think it's good that we have something that people can refer to, Mm -hmm. but in terms of like putting it into practice, I just don't see it happening super often. Yeah. Yeah. But, but so people in the, especially on the internets will say, you know, they get the recommendations are crap. You know, since we've started publishing guidelines, we've gotten, you know, fatter as a nation or, you know, we're, doing this other things getting worse or something. And it's like, it's not the recommendations fault necessarily that like the actual substance is bad. It's just that they're not being implemented. So the adherence is bad. The behavioral change aspect of this is bad or not ideal. So that, that means coming up with it, it from or coming at it from a different angle. Like, okay, if the recommendations are reasonable, well, how do we get more people to do them? Which is the same thing again, we did with the physical activity guidelines. So yeah, I would change if I had to change one thing about the nutrition guidelines, I would actually have one, I would, I would tie this in with a PSA of some sort, you know? So like something that, that has millions of dollars behind it, that's catchy, edgy, you know, and people it like click it or ticket. Do you, you remember yeah, that? I do. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. So like, what, what can we do with the, with the food? You know, like, I don't know. I'm not good at this. I, I would be a terrible rapper, yeah, but, <laughs> but, but something like that. And then, I think when people, if people go to the website, let's just say it's like they have even uh, easier to access websites. So you don't have to go to like health.gov backslash dietary guidelines. Like, you know, you don't have to do that. You just go to like what to eat.com. And then there's like a five page, you know, PDF or something very simple or very, mm, we'll just say easy to implement. Mm-hmm. So again, simple. I don't want to, I don't want to conflate these, these terms and, and, and you have to use leverage elements of behavioral change within the actual process of reading the document. So it's like, so things that build self-efficacy again, 
making sure that people realize the role that they play in their own health, right? Putting, put, you know, giving them perspective there, providing skills and resources like how to go grocery shopping, how to prepare these foods, how to, you know, estimate portion sizes in a, a reasonable manner, um, allowing them to pick their own foodstuffs, all these things like make them a part of the process, empower them or whatever, and then give them access to more resources as they need it, not like overwhelm them with this 144-page yes, book. Yes, agreed. That would what I would do. But again, if any good quality improvement project, all you say, all right, well, here's what I think is going to happen. And then if it doesn't work, you know, if you get data on it a year later and say, yeah, it's no better or whatever time frame you're using, you got to change it again. Mm-hmm. You can't just, yeah, so evidence-based sort of policy making or, or like recommendations making. But I, yeah, I agree with you. I don't have a problem with the actual guidelines themselves, like the heart, the numbers. I just have a problem with the behavioral change aspect of yep. it. I, I guess if I had to pick one thing and I'll let you comment on this, what do you think about like the protein recommendations? Uh, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I like that your first answer was a laugh. <laughs> um, I don't think it's appropriate in terms of being enough <laughs> for most of sure. the population. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're the stated guidelines, like you should eat a variety of protein foods, including seafood, lean meats, poultry, eggs, legumes, nuts, seeds, and soy products. And then the problem is when you go for like an actual number in here, they don't give it mm-hmm. to you. You know, they give you a number of servings, but they, it's hard to like, you know, they're talking about five and a half ounces or equivalent per day for somebody eating 2000 calories yeah, per a day. day. <laughs> so how about yeah. per meal? So again, that's like, well, that's what I'm saying. So that's like 70, you know, something grams. I think the, the RDI is like 72 grams for yeah. an adult or something like that to maintain nitrogen balance, to maintain you know, protein status. I think that the problems with the recommendations for that, that would be my only like, gosh, I wish that was right. different. Um, one, don't put nuts in there. <laughs> like it's, just, it's not so, a protein. It's a fat, right? It's not a great source <laughs> of protein. They're incomplete. It's high calorie yeah. as well. Cause there's so, and if we're, if most Americans in particular should be, restricting calories why are you recommending nuts for mm-hmm. a protein source bad yes. bad news bears and then the other thing is i have a problem with the actual protein recommendation i think that the issn's recommendation for protein intake is much more is much better particularly as it's based on actual research and has appropriate caveats in there that kind of again leverage this behavioral change standpoint like if I was trying to get somebody to make a behavioral change for uh, changing their protein intake, right? After they have insight into the problem and the intervention we want to make, I want to individualize the recommendation for them so that they understand, like, this is why I need to do this. You know, so like, so the recommendation right now from the ISSN is 1.7 grams per kilo body weight, all the way up to three grams per kilo body weight, depending on mm-hmm. context. So like if you're losing weight, the recommendation, the number gets higher. If you're already leaner to start, the number goes higher. If you're older, the number goes higher. On the other hand, if you're gaining weight, uh, if you're younger, uh, you know, then the weight, the number is a little lower. And so again, this individualized thing, which also is a benefit of being based on research, again, allows people to tailor it to themselves. It'd be cool if the if the food, uh, if the dietary guidelines adopted something like that, you know, but I bet you what they're thinking, I bet you what they're thinking though is like, that's too complicated to which I reply. Well, the simplicity thing that you guys are like the targets you're aiming for haven't been working from an adherence standpoint. And I would also argue that five and a half ounces to, or equivalent per day is not very straightforward either. I mean, if you if you put down like four fist size portions, then maybe I don't know, but I, I don't know that it's necessarily very simple right now from it as based on the current adherence. Uh, you know, uh, what is it? I think the last statistic I read is eighty percent of, of Americans do not meet the dietary guidelines from either a calorie standpoint, or so from you can be from a calorie standpoint, fruits or vegetable intake or oil uh, sort of intake that tends to be those tend to be the major problems. So, mm-hmm. okay, <laughs> less, less egregious stuff. Let's talk about weight loss. All right. I'm not trying to cut, but <laughs> you know, theoretically, if you were, what do you, what do you think 
the most, if I were theoretically, what do you think the most important things to track are? What do you think are the most important things to track when weight loss is the goal? So this would be like, um, let's see. So I think that the most important things to track would be uh, compliance to a specific diet and how well someone's able to adhere to a certain plan. Um, and then in addition to that, their, their actual weights and maybe like a weekly or monthly weight average, uh, hip and waist measurements and, um, mental sanity. (laughs) What do you use to track sanity? I don't, I don't have a scale, but I'm working on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's some sort of no. Um, I mean, are it's you kind of a joke, today? but if somebody's going crazy or right. they're miserable on a certain plan, then it's probably best to find another approach or try to make some changes to make it more sustainable for them. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. I think looking at this, the two buckets I put things under is subjective and objective, right? So objective being like weight loss, like weight change rather, so delta weight, and then mm-hmm. delta anthropometric measurements. So waist circumference being one that we track on or I track at least on, on most individuals and then maybe a hip circumference in uh, individuals with that gynecoid fat distribution. So carrying most of their fat, uh, the body fat in the lower extremities and, and, and as my grandma would say, <laughs> the tuchus, uh, <laughs> honey, you tuchus. <laughs> That's going to be the best part of the podcast. Um, so yeah, those would be the objective measurements that on for weight loss that I typically track. And then subjectively, uh, one scale that we've been using lately is like dietary RPE. Um, I've just kind of, kind of testing it just to see if I could get, I I want people to be able to easily communicate with me, like Mm -hmm. how hard the diet was for them to comply with, uh, or adhere to, sorry, new verbiage here, adhere to, um, because, and I wanted them to be able to do it in, in a way that, adequately captures like how hard it was for them like what sort of resources did they have to like leverage in order Mm -hmm. to adhere that particular week because if if they're rpe 10 we'll call it the drpe 10 every week every day that that seems like a bad deal it seems like it's not going to be sustainable for any period of time um and that and that and that and that jibes with uh like behavioral change data, like you have somebody in an action phase, right? They're like making changes, they're acquiring skills, they're, they, in order to transition them to maintenance, right? Where they're, they're less sort of daily kind of exertion to, uh, to, to adhere, you need to lower this sort of, uh, uh, the barriers that are mm-hmm. making them that they have to overcome every day. And so, if somebody's on a particular dietary plan and it's DRPE 10 on a daily basis, I want to know. And then I want to figure yeah. out why. Because it may just be it may just be a palate thing, right? So it's like, let's say that you were like keto Ugh. queen. You're not, but let's just say. Well, all right. <laughs> and and I told you you needed to be on a high-carb, low-fat diet. Yeah. Your DRPE might be higher, right? So it could just be like preferences. Uh, on the other hand, if you wanted to, let's say you preferred larger meals, right? But I like mandated that you had, you know, five yeah. small to moderately sized meals per day. No, 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 work. that's no good. Yeah. So like, again, th- this right. could be like just a style right. or, t- uh, or, or preferences kind of situation. And I think ultimately trying to tease that out with our weekly updates, mm-hmm. that's like the big part of the subjective thing. Um, I guess what have, what has been your experience as far as like the biggest hangups that people have that like keeps them from adhering to, uh, I think, I mean, kind of feeding off what you're just saying about dietary RP and like the, the barriers it's, it's just really is about finding what someone prefers because you can get results plenty of ways. It's just a matter of how well you can adhere to something and, if you can't sustain the changes, then you're going to end up right back where you were. So, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so as far as the biggest think, factor for yeah, success and weight loss, you would say adherence. Yeah, I, I agree. I, and I, I think, you know, that's like the duh answer. The only level of nuance I'm getting there. I, I would like add to that is like the enjoyability of the process 
which I, which I, it's the same thing I, I would say in like resistance training or physical activity in general. Because if you have somebody who hates it, they literally hate it. Totally. It's the worst for them. It, and it's going to be difficult to yeah. make it part of their lifestyle where it's automatic. So, so if somebody was like, look, man, I like this training program, but every time you make me low bar back squat, I get anxiety. I, it, you know, it hurts or I feel some discomfort or I'm scared it's going to hurt. And it's just, I hate it. And they're not going to be a competitive powerlifter. I don't necessarily yeah, know. Like why not substitute them do that. that exercise and find something that they do like, cause then they'll stick to the plan longer. Yeah. Same thing. Same thing. Nutrition wise. It's like, if someone's like, I'm a vegan and then, and then I'm, you know, as a, maybe a younger coach, me at a younger, at a different time period. So, well, I think you need mm-hmm. to eat uh, animal based proteins. And I made them do it. And they were like, well, you're the boss, you know, and they had this like, dietary anxiety about eating the steak because they didn't want to and it just again we're just creating barriers that don't need to be there so don't you know that's the biggest takeaway like if you're creating barriers that either increase the dietary rp or like messing with the enjoyability of the process like try to eliminate those that that would be my yeah outside of adherence you know just as a umbrella term biggest factors for success uh now you've i think i don't know how many clients you've coached throughout your life but it's a lot uh i know that i get a lot of questions and comments feedback about you know when people are like kind of done with the process once they've lost the weight that they wanted to lose where they're like you know when i came in i initially thought that this would be important but now i realize it's just calories for it so like the biggest one i get people are like i thought that food quality was going to be way more important to this process um, do you get similar feedback or do you get people who like you find are focusing on the wrong things when they yeah, start definitely. compared to um, you at the end? I mean, yeah, all the time. <laughs> um, people think that maybe it's like a specific food that they need to cut out or that they need to be vegan or something in order to like see results when really it's just like an energy balance equation. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's definitely a disconnect I, uh, I was actually in Utah recently and I got into a conversation with the front desk clerk who I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how we got on this topic, but she asked me what I did. And, you know, I told her I'm a dietitian, I'm a nutrition coach. And of course she wanted to tell me her story about how she lost weight and lost 70 pounds last year, but she went vegan in order to do that. And then, ended up gaining all the weight back because she couldn't sustain, you know, eating a vegan diet. And so like that alone, that experience, like that conversation with her, I was almost like a little bit sad about it that she thought she had to be vegan to like have weight loss. (laughs) So yeah, there's, there's definitely a disconnect. It's kind of, yeah, it's interesting. Like animal protein was uniquely fattening. Yeah. Or so, yeah, something, something like that. That was her mindset. I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, to, to wherever that idea came from, you could find on PubMed correlational studies, cross-section correlation studies, where you look at people who eat the most amount of meat, for instance, and they would tend to have a higher BMI mm-hmm. and higher body fat. That's true in some populations, but when you correct for total calories, it's not that there's nothing inherently fattening about animal, you know, or, or really anything, even sugar. Yes. Like unless the only time that you could make like a really strong argument for from a uh, obesogenic sort of standpoint would be sugar sweetened beverages. Because the problem the problem is that we we have not yet developed the ability to correct for caloric liquid calorie intake. Mm-hmm. So it's like if you drink 300 calories from a sugar sweetened beverage, you're unlikely to accommodate for that in your later dietary choices by eating 300 calories yes. less. So, so that puts you in the surplus, you know, potentially obesogenic, but it's not like sugar, you know, we, <laughs> we, we were at the, we were at the CrossFit level one MD Baraki and I, mm-hmm. and the funniest thing was, so if I had to like describe our interests 
to somebody who didn't know us, I would say, well, Baraki's super interested in pain science and I'm super interested in, uh, nutrition and, uh, and its relationships to health and performance and everything else. Now we both are interested. I'm interested in pain science too, but it's just anyway, he's gone farther down the rabbit hole than I have on, on that. And then vice versa for nutrition. So anytime that they said something related to pain or, you know, preventing injury or whatever, I always, you know, shot my hand up and I was like, well, technically, you know, I had to, <laughs> had to do that. Cause I know that he was so triggered that it, it <laughs> but he was so triggered on that. that like he couldn't. And then, when they would say something about nutrition, he did the same thing for me. It's like, we were looking out for each other. Um, they were trying, they were trying to make the case that carbohydrates were uniquely obesogenic. Hmm. And the example that we gave, or he gave that everybody there, cause everybody was doctor. Everybody were doctors or, or was, is, is, doc, is our doctors. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well in medical school, sometimes you don't learn the best, best grammar, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> everybody, everybody in the audience was, uh, were physicians. And so the example he gave was like, you know, you have a patient, he's inpatient in a hospital and they're on TPN, right? So they're getting hundred percent of their nutritional needs via bag, you know, that's, that's being ran, uh, ran in somewhere. And, uh, you could fill it with, you know, 90% glucose, mm-hmm. They could, you know, and have fructose in there as well, plus the essential amino acids they need and uh, and essential fatty acids. And they'll lose weight if they're in a calorie deficit. Yeah. You know, if the nutritionist, nutritionist calculations were wrong uh, based on the person's metabolic rate, they'll lose weight. Mm-hmm. Even on a really high carb fructose and sucrose contain, you know, containing diet. And we all of the doctors and they're nodded in agreement like, yep, that's what happens. Because, you know, the calorie deficit prevails. Uh, it's just interesting that, like, there's this disconnect from the public and sort of lay understanding of nutrition that's like, oh, you, there are certain macronutrients or dietary components that are uniquely obesogenic. And we just don't really have evidence for that outside of, like, again, sugar sweetened beverages. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know that because you were in the hospital, you were calculating all these things. Yeah, I was. Like, <laughs> So what, what's in a normal bag? Like what would be your normal formulation for a person who's inpatient who can't, uh, can't eat by mouth, uh, but otherwise you're trying to sustain their, their weight. I know there are a bunch of different formulations, but just so the listeners at home kind of know what, what's in a bag of, uh, uh, of food that these people are getting. I mean, it, I feel like I've been out of the hospital forever, but it's only been like three years. Um, but I mean, yeah, like you said, there's, uh, some form of carbohydrate. So like a, a dextrose and then amino acids and essential fatty acids. And there's ways to, um, have the pharmacist calculate different percentages in a bag based on a person's nutrition needs. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then it, but if you would get daily weights or something like that on this person and like try to figure out, well, is this actually enough calories? Cause Oh, they're still losing weight. Must be in a calorie deficit. You never thought like, oh, there's, there's not enough sugar in, in this no. thing. We need to keep the calories the same, but up the sugar because that's going to promote weight. Weight. Nope, never done that. Turns out science has an Turns answer. Turns out here. it does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Let's move on to weight gain. All right. I mean, I, I, I think most people in this space probably, if I had to guess like the proportion of like how many clients, what percentage of clients are initiating weight, weight loss versus weight gain is probably 70, 30 or 80, 20. I, yeah. You know, I agree mo- with that. most people are looking for weight loss versus weight gain, but we talked about like measuring weight and anthropometric measurements for the objective sort of tracking, uh, during weight loss phases. Do you do the same for weight gain or there anything else that you track? Um, yeah, I, I do also monitor waist size, um, and kind of assess how comfortable someone is with gaining weight too. If they're not, if they're kind of like, they know they need to gain weight, but they're really have a fear of putting on too much fat. Maybe that means you go through the process a little bit slower with somebody. Uh, and then, yeah, we monitor their actual weights and like a weight trend as well. Yep. Yeah. That's something I do is, and I think it's important you pointed out, like if somebody's not comfortable with it, basically what they've told you in a roundabout way is that the, 
they're disincentivized, at least, you know, based on their current understanding of the process from gaining weight. So if, if they need to gain weight for some reason, so they say, I want to gain lean body mass to improve my performance or, you know, improve my aesthetic or whatever. They, on one hand, know that, but on the other hand, they're like, I don't want to engage in this process because I'm afraid or because I think I'm going to gain a bunch of body fat or this, that, and the other. And so what they're saying there is they need more education about the process and like what you're, what we're looking for, basically telling you what, what the teaching point is to get them over the hump, to reduce that, you know, negative sort of outlook, to get them into the action phase. And I think that's, that's super important. So particularly with females, uh, or I should say women, um, trying to gain, get women to gain weight can be a bigger challenge because, you know, they're like, well, why though? <laughs> and I'm like, well, there's no real reason to do it unless these other things are more important to you than your current perception of your aesthetic. If, and if that's important to you, you know, but if I have somebody who could stand to gain a bunch of lean body mass or significant amount of lean body mass to improve their lifting performance, and that's really important to them, well, that needs to be pointed yes. out clearly. So for instance, when you re-enter the powerlifting, uh, powerlifting, competitive powerlifting world, you know, 72 is probably where you got to yeah. go. <laughs> well, You're saying for me personally? Well, I better well, stop being close to a 57 then. <laughs> well, yes, yes. But, but I think you know that inherent intuitively though, cause you're kind of like, all right, I mean, here are my yeah, numbers now, here totally. are my numbers before. And if I wanted to get significantly stronger, need more muscle cross-sectional yeah. area. Yeah. Uh, okay. What about the rate, you know, cause we get this question literally yeah. every seminar and I talked about it now, I talk about it now. So to try to address it before the Q and A, cause I think people got tired of it in the Q and A, like it's the same right. answer every single time. What, what's the appropriate rate you think of weight gain for an so individual? So I think it varies a lot from person to person. Um, and it depends on what someone's goals are. Uh, if they're, currently underweight, then that plays into it and their age and if there's any medical conditions that they're dealing with. Uh, so I feel like it's hard to give like a hard number, but, um, yeah, it's kind of, it depends, which is an annoying answer to a lot of people, but it, it just depends. <laughs> Half a pound might be too slow or it might be just right. You know, it depends. Yeah. I, uh, I usually, I bring up this one particular study that I like because it kind of exemplifies at least what I consider to be a reasonable upper limit for weight gain. If the idea is that you don't want to put on too much body fat, right? Which I think most people, uh, don't want to do. And I don't think it's, I think it would be ill-advised to rapidly accumulate body fat in nearly all settings, but the study is from it's from the New England Journal of Medicine, 1996. Uh, Basir et al. Basically, what they did is they compared how individuals who were getting three times the normal dose of testosterone replacement therapy, so 600 milligrams of testosterone uh, per week, they compared those individuals who were doing that to those who were getting a placebo, and then within those two groups. Half of them resistance trained three times a week doing six sets or four sets of six on a squat, bench press, uh, and a row. <laughs> and so, so basically you have four groups, right? One group who is getting juice to the gills and <laughs> resistance training. One group who's just getting the juice. The second, another group is just getting the placebo and resistance training. And the fourth group is the control, no training and a placebo. And they studied these people for 10 weeks and they measured uh, how much fat-free mass they gained in those 10 weeks. Well, the people on the juice who were resistance training gained six kilos of fat-free mass in those 10 weeks. So if we, if we kind of put this into like more like round numbers in three months, they were able to gain about, you know, 12, 13 pounds of muscle, mm -hmm. which is substantial amount, you know? Four pound, four plus pounds a month. The people who were not, who were getting the placebo, but who were still resistance training, gained two and a half kilos in that same time period. So, when somebody who's not going to be juiced to the gills <laughs> wants to embark upon some weight gain and they're 
the, I think the average, the age, uh, range was 19 to 40 in this and they were all untrained. So you're thinking like, if you had to pick people who you think are going to respond reasonably well to resistance training, it's going to be younger men who have not resistance trained before who are not overweight, you know, or obese. So this, these are the folks and, and, and they were able to gain maybe a kilo per month of lean body mass. So it would seem hard (laughs) to rationalize a more aggressive recommendation for most folks. Mm -hmm. That being said, there's some folks who they start training and they just gain muscle mass really quickly. You know, they're over responders. That's great. But you're that outlier. And I don't think from a general recommendation standpoint, I could say, yeah, I gained two or three kilos a month. Because I think a substantial portion of that's going to be body fat. Yeah. And I think that by gaining weight faster, it doesn't really improve any outcome like performance wise. That's worth the addition of body fat. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's a roundabout way of saying, I think about a kilo a month is like the upper limit of what I would recommend for somebody gain, uh, somebody to gain, uh, weight, weight with anything more than that. I feel like you're either using some special supplements in which case maybe a little bit higher than that. Uh, or you have very favorable genetics, in which case I'm I'm jelly. I'm jelly. Right. Yeah. We're all jealous. (laughs) Uh, Okay. We're going to wrap this up here with a few personal questions. Yeah. What do you like to do outside of coaching, lifting, uh, working for barbell medicine? Oh, I think my, my, uh, my answers are going to make me either seem really cool or not that cool to people, but, um, <laughs> I, I, I bake a lot. Um, I love to bake. I feel like that's my, my oh, other like food. passion. Yeah. Like bake, but not cook. Like, I, I mean, I like to cook, but I like to bake more. Um, I spend a lot of time hunting for rare house plants that I don't already have. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. It's kind of a, it's kind of a thing. Um, and then I hang with my dogs a lot and my fiance and I travel probably as much as I can, not as much this year as normal, but whenever I can. Wait, you said not as much as normal? Not this year hasn't been as much. Oh, as normal. Oh, I see. I, I see. mean, I just, I just got back from Alaska and Seattle, which was awesome, but humble I, brag. Yeah. I mean, I try to do like a international trip, but it, it didn't happen yet this year. So all right. Year. Yeah. So in addition to making the, some bomb, your bomb confectionery skills and uh, botanical quests for (laughs) rare plants. Yes. (laughs) Travel, travel, the travel bug is real. Uh, Where can people find your stuff online? Um, my Instagram, which is Vanessa underscore barbell medicine or my email, Vanessa at barbellmedicine.com. Yeah, hit her up, like her posts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't post that much anymore, but I know I should. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll we'll guilt you into doing it. Yeah. Um, and so what we do here, especially on this uh, getting to know our coaches series, we like to, I like to end these things with like what I think are interesting and funny questions. Okay. Um, this is less funny, more interesting, but it could be funny. Depends on you. Uh, what did you want to be when you grow up originally? Oh man. Um. I think that there's a home video of me and my mom asked me this question and I'm pretty sure I said a firefighter or a, a garbage man or a garbage man. I don't know. Um, You're just breaking down gender roles. Like that was the thing you were like, I don't know. I want to be a garbage woman. I really don't know. But I think I said garbage man. I just didn't know. Um, and then, yeah, I, I mean, I don't like fire at all. So I'm glad that that, <laughs> that didn't end up working out for me. <laughs> Do you think that most fire, like people, like firemen like fire? Yeah, gosh. I mean, I don't know. I, uh, maybe they might. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Who knows? We'll have to, you, you, listeners, you'll have to let us know if you are involved in, uh, if you're a fireman or firefighter, uh, you let us know. Do you guys actually like fire? No, I mean, they probably just like saving people, but you know. Right. Yeah. Cats, people. All sorts of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think when I when I was first coming up, I, I the earliest memory that I have was I wanted to be an architect. Oh, really? Like, Interesting. Yeah, and so like I got a drafting board, and I would like have all these sketches. I think that my sketchbook is has been lost in the series of moves 
uh, all over the place, but yeah, I, that was my, that was my jam. And then I, I took all these drafting classes and AutoCAD and some other stuff in high school. And I really thought like, that's where I was going to go. And then, uh, yeah, nothing came from that, but <laughs> that's interesting. I did not well, know that about you. Yeah. 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 It just, I think what I really liked was, was the aesthetic, like the pleasing aesthetic of like drawing a building and like, and then the plans and stuff like that and how like satisfying it is to, to do that. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We've had the pleasure of speaking with Vanessa Berman today. If you're listening to this on iTunes, head over, uh, leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, helps get the word out about Barbell Medicine. And thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.